The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello and welcome everyone to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. This week, the last week of the season as we await Alabama and Clemson to play for the national title, we have two guests. Cole Kubelik from SEC Network joins me to break down the fourth straight playoff meeting between the Tigers and Crimson Tide. Also, we'll wrap up bowl season with Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. We'll choose winners and losers and say goodbye to Urban Meyer. And we got into an interesting conversation about Notre Dame and Brian Kelly uh, that we I did not expect, but it turned out to be pretty interesting. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. My first guest today on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is Cole Kubelik from the SEC Network. He also has a radio show he does every day on WJOX, right? In Correct. Birmingham. Yep. You know, you can just about find Cole everywhere. He is pretty much the hardest working man in the SEC. But I brought you on to talk about Alabama and Clemson because I know you've watched a lot of Alabama film. I assume you've probably watched at least a little bit, if not a bunch, of Clemson. And I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of breaking this game down. Let's start with this. Is there a place schematically or personnel-wise We'll start with Clemson. That Clemson, you think, has sort of an advantage or a way that it could take advantage of Alabama. Some place that what Clemson does matches up in a way with Alabama that favors Clemson. Sure. Kind of a twofold answer here. I'll say, first off, if we're just talking from a baseline perspective of guys that are going to be on the field, things of that nature, I, I think that if they can find a way Clemson to get Christian Wilkins on Lester Cotton left guard consistently, that could be a big advantage for Clemson. Uh, Wilkins is a guy that, that has really good quickness inside, could be very disruptive against a player who was benched in the middle of the season for um, a younger player that came in and sort of took his spot and now is suspended and not going to play. I think that would be an advantage for Clemson. The second would be more situationally. I think if they can find Cleveland Farrell or Austin Bryant lined up on Jedrick Wills at right tackle in obvious pass downs and hope for one-on-ones, so if there's not a backer tied into that side, and Alabama's tight ends have, have played pretty good football. Irv Smith has gotten his proper due this year, but I thought another tight end that they have, Hale Hinch, has had a really good game against Oklahoma, especially blocking. And so they've got some extra guys that they can throw out there to help that could make life a little bit more difficult on those Clemson defensive ends and their path to the quarterback. However, either of those defensive ends, because Jedrick Wills has had some issues in pass protection this year at times, I think that because of the ability that those two bring to the table, that they could have a big advantage there. And then I think offensively, um, there's not going to be anything up front where I feel really good saying Clemson has a big advantage. I'll say that if I'm leaning one direction or the other, I would lean with the Clemson receivers having an advantage against the Alabama secondary. I, and, and here's the thing about it, Ralph. I don't know how good the Alabama secondary is. I don't think anybody else really does. They got a little bit of a test against Oklahoma. I think that was even disrupted because Oklahoma had to, had to really shift their game plan early on. Because here's what happens against Alabama. You could go back and you could look at the plan – if you really dissect it, that Ole Miss had in place, that Missouri had in place, that maybe even Georgia had in place, but it wasn't effective against as effective against Georgia as it was some other teams. And then the plan Oklahoma had in place, those teams had good plans. And the possibility of what could have been the outcome was very positive. But then all of a sudden, Quinn Williams happens to your offense, and everything has to be thrown out. Because he is that disruptive of a force. And he forces you to change what you do, how you do it, when you do it. 
And so I think you saw that secondary tested a little bit later in the game, and Oklahoma got a few plays. And the reason that I don't know how good they are is just because Quentin Williams, Raquan Davis, uh, Anthony Jennings, Christian Miller, these guys have been so good up front for Alabama, Isaiah Bugs, that most teams don't even have the opportunity to test them consistently over the course of four quarters. So I think if they can find a way to get a little bit of time and give Trevor Lawrence a little bit of time, I would slightly lean the, the Clemson wide receivers against the Alabama secondary, but that's another one that some things have to happen for us to even realistically see that matchup. This ain't seven on seven where we're just going to go out there and throw and see who can cover, who can catch, who can run, who, can, who has the better routes. That's not necessarily what this is going to be. So to even get to be where we can look at that matchup, some things have to happen up front, and I'm not overly confident that the Clemson offensive line can, can really consistently make that happen. And we'll flip that around in a second. A lot of that was sort of personnel-based. Is there anything X's and O's-wise that you've seen out of Clemson that makes you think, oh, they do this well, this has been a problem for Alabama, or this in some ways doesn't quite, you know, this is sort of square peg round hole for Alabama, or a way for maybe maybe there's a scheme, there's a way Clemson can scheme up to help it match up better offensively or it's up front with Alabama's defensive line and Quinton Williams? There'll be two things that come to mind. Number one is, is Clemson can go fast when they want to. If, if I'm coaching Clemson, if I'm Davo Sweeney in this game, I go legit warp speed. I mean, like, I'm going inside the Millennium Falcon, and I want to see those lines, like, coming right at me, like, like we're going light speed, and we go as fast as humanly possible for as long as humanly possible in this game. Because Now, I will, I say, I will say something, Cole. Like, they don't do that as much anymore. They, don't, they haven't been they doing have that quite as much. Yep, yep, right. absolutely. But they're capable of it. And I think if you look late in the Auburn game and late in the Georgia game and late in the Oklahoma game, that Alabama front looked gassed. And so I think the capability of being able to go fast could be a big advantage for Clemson. And the other thing that I'll say is these Alabama linebackers have found themselves out of position at times this year. So a lot of the window dressing that goes with the Clemson offense, and that can be an RPO, that can be a read option or a zone read play, that can be orbit motion, jet motion, different things like that, receivers moving different ways. I think you'll see Clemson do more before the snap if they're not going light speed in this game than you have in the last few games. Because one of those two things I think has to happen. I think you have to either trap Alabama and try to wear them down and go fast, or you have to give them so many different things pre-snap that you force them to be out of position. Because kind of like what you said earlier, and you heard me, I kind of struggled to really find one-on-ones, guy-for-guys that that are just flat out an advantage for Clemson. There's not going to be a ton of those. So you got to find ways to neutralize matchups. And visual deception is one that over the years has consistently worked against Alabama. Now, it doesn't work for four quarters, but you're going to find a way to get some plays if you can add enough window dressing behind what you're really trying to accomplish to force them to essentially take themselves out of plays. Okay, now let's flip this around to the Alabama side of thing, and let's see where their advantages lie. And you're right. Now, listen, Alabama will generally have an advantage, man for man, at just about every position. At most, you're going to do is is maybe sort of come up even. So, with that said, where are maybe its best, its greatest advantages? And you mentioned Quinn and Williams, and that's the one that I sort of thought you've sort of hedged here, or maybe you explain a little more now that the Clemson offensive line is not a great offensive line. So let's start there. I imagine let let's start there with Quinn and Williams. But where are the greatest advantages for Alabama when it comes to sort of man on man matchups with Clemson? Well, it's kind of twofold. When, when you And we'll stay with Quinn and Williams because I said this before the Alabama-Oklahoma game. A lot of the run scheme that Oklahoma utilizes is very similar to what Clemson utilizes. You'll see some zone stuff, but you'll see a lot of gap scheme run as well where one lineman will block back or block down, and then the, the offensive lineman in front of that player will pull to try to get out in space and go block a second-level defender or kick out a defender playing at the end of the line of scrimmage. And then that carries over into some of their stuff that they do in the passing game as well. Slide protection, quick protection, where 
you're just taking a step to your left or a step to your right. We call it gap protection, so you're blocking a gap and not a man. Well, if you have a guy who can jump gaps and you have a guy who can utilize his quickness and he lines up in one A gap and then he ends up rushing to the opposite A gap or he can line up on a left shade of the center and he jumps across to the right shade, when you're sliding and you're not getting north and south, and you're essentially trying to cover things from an east and west perspective, it can be very easy for that player to free himself up. And a lot of that's what happened against Oklahoma. You had guys that were trying to block down on Quinton Williams, and he would either jump a gap the opposite direction, so then all of a sudden there's nobody there, or you try to block down on him, and he jumps across you when you're trying to block down on him, and then he ends up getting in the way of the guy who's pulling. So the scheme is not very friendly to handle not only a guy as talented as Quinn Williams, but the way he plays. And when he's jumping gaps, the way in, in the, the, the hard part about it is he's strong enough to just stand there and take on a double team and play the run as well. He doesn't do it as much. So he doesn't play the Terrence Cody style or the Duran Payne style very much, or for Clemson fans, what they would be used to the Dexter Lawrence style. He's more of a gap jumper and utilizes his lateral quickness, which when your scheme is gap scheme, be it pass or run, you can very easily allow him to be a part of the play just by where he's going to go jumping off the football. Now, he can also take himself out of some plays. And if you can find ways to read him or in, and let him penetrate and then wham him with an H-back or a tight end, like coming from across the side and block him, or instead of your quarterback reading a defensive end, you know, you run sort of a midline and you read that defensive tackle. If he comes upfield, you know, your quarterback's going to pull it and you run back to where he was. Or if he stays at home, you can hand it off. A lot of different things can happen there. But I, I think that it's, it's sort of a twofold advantage for Alabama. Not only is he the most dominant defensive player, most difficult defensive player to deal with in college football, but the style also favors Alabama heavily as far as what he does and how he plays and how Clemson intends to try and block it. On the offensive side of the ball, let's look at Alabama. Where are their advantages? Are there any disadvantages? Here's a disadvantage. Clemson, and it's funny because Alabama did this defensively to Auburn. Alabama essentially played, if you go back and you watch, they played five, sometimes four, maybe six in the box, which are good run looks. If I come up to the line of scrimmage in the center and we got inside zone, outside zone, we're running power, whatever, and I get five in the box, that's a good run look. Six is sometimes still a really good run look, mm-hmm. and we'll take that every time, depending on where the backers are lined up and what the alignment of the interior defensive linemen are. So Alabama went into the Auburn game saying, we're, going, we're willing to give you good run looks, essentially for two reasons. Number one, we don't think your offensive line is good enough to push us around. But number two – we don't think you can outscore us by doing this. So even if you go out and run for 220, 250, we think we're going to score enough to where that just flat out won't be enough for you. So Clemson can play Alabama in sort of a similar fashion because they're so talented up front with Cleveland Farrell, Christian Wilkins, and Austin Bryant. I think you see them play fewer numbers in the box, take their chances with it. Because there's one thing that I've sort of noticed about Alabama's offense. They're kind of greedy in that they know they're really good throwing the ball, and they know they have an elite quarterback and elite wide receivers, so why not go out there and pitch it around? Very rarely, and they did it a little bit kind of middle of the third quarter against Oklahoma, but very rarely did they just kind of put that thing in in first gear or put that thing in cruise control and just throttle down and try to wear a team down and run the clock. They almost can't do it. And I understand why they can't do it or don't want to do it, But if I'm Clemson, I'm kind of thinking, why don't we just rely on our front four and we'll play more numbers on the back end? If it's me, this is how I'm drawing it up. I'm I'm going to probably play five in the box, maybe six, depending on the looks. If I get two tight ends, you know, if you get 12, 22 personnel, 13 personnel, I'll play you with two backers, maybe three backers in the box. I'm going to try to take away the quick throws. I'm going to play some off zone and try to take away slants. And I want to jump some of those routes with the understanding that we're probably going to get beat over the top some. But I've got confidence in my front four to be able to get enough pressure that the double moves and the longer developing pass plays should not be there. 
we have to win that one. And I, I would be if there's one area that that Clemson should be most confident that they can win one on ones, it should be with that defensive line because they're that good, they're that talented. So that is a little bit of an area that I think Clemson can find a way to get some wins is just flat out having more numbers on the back end. Because if Alabama continues to try to run into that front four and doesn't find success, well, then where do you go? You're not getting a numbers advantage on the back end, and those guys should be able to dial up enough pressure to where you're not going to be able to have four, six, seven seconds in the pocket to be able to deliver some of those longer passes down the field. And, and also kind of a wild card in this whole thing, I think, is Isaiah Simmons. I think Isaiah Simmons can be someone who can come up and rush the passer. I think he's someone who can play in some of those soft zones and try and take away some of those quick throws with his length and with his speed and athleticism. And I, I think he could be sort of a guy, and I know he doesn't play safety. I'm not comparing him to Troy Palomalu, but somebody who sort of has that role in that we're going to let him sort of freelance a little mm-hmm. bit and maybe blitz, maybe rush, maybe drop back, maybe be in man because he's that gifted athletically. And just you don't really know how to account for him because he's physically capable of doing so many different things. And that also, I think, physically could be a little bit of a win for Clemson because I think he's just that physically gifted. It is interesting to hear, it's like bizarro world, to hear somebody say, this is an Alabama team that essentially you want to challenge to run the ball. Oh, you want yeah. to sort of dare you want to dare them to saying, run essentially, yeah, even though they they can do that. Please run the ball thirty five times on it. I mean, yeah. I, I think if I go into this game and I'm Brent Venables and I'm thinking if if I can make them not counting, let's say you know twenty five runs in the fourth quarter to, to milk clock, if I can make them run the ball twenty five times in the first half, I I that's a win. So just, I mean, that's a win mm-hmm. because you got to be confident in your offense. And, and Clemson's got to think we're going to have to score to win this football game. Mm-hmm. So if you go in with that mindset and you just make Alabama work, just make them. I mean, think about that barrage, that first five minutes, that onslaught that hit Oklahoma in that game the other night. There are not many teams that could be sitting at 28 to nothing if that happened to them. Yeah. I mean, most teams are going to be looking at 42 to nothing if they get hit that hard because – they're not even going to be able to bounce back the way Oklahoma did and find a touchdown here or there and find a stop here or there. And I do think Alabama throttled down a little bit in that game, but then you saw them pick it right back up, and they started throwing more slants. They started pushing the ball down the field. So they're never going to stop. I'm going to be honest with you, Ralph. I don't think Alabama can just run the football. I don't. I think they tried too early against Auburn, and then they tried too early against Mississippi State. I think that first drive against Mississippi State, they ran it like, seven or nine out of a 11 or 13 plays, something. They tried to impose their will early, and they did it. But then they don't stick with it. Mm-hmm. It's because they know they're too good at quarterback and receiver. Why would you? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's literally having a pistol in your holster and walking up to a fight in an alley with a guy with a baseball bat and saying, well, I can take him. You know, I, don't, I don't need my gun for this. I'm just going <laughs> to see if I can take him out. And it's, I mean, it's just why not pull it out and go? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, you had me on your show a couple of weeks ago, and that was the one thing I wondered about is in a big game against a team that plays like Oklahoma, if Alabama would be sort of willing to play its version of Oklahoma or would Alabama instinctively retreat back to what it tried to do against Mississippi State and things along those lines. Like, oh, you know what? We can take a little air out of the cl-. And they didn't. And when they hit the 50-yard pass on the first or second play was when I sort of realized, nope, this is going to be fine. This is exactly the way they need to play. They can do this just as well as anybody in the country. There's no reason they need to protect their defense. They can just score and score and score and let the defense fall where they may. And I do agree with you. I, I tend to think this will be a high-scoring game. I think the winner gets 30 at least, and we'll see what happens with the loser. Well, let me let me actually hit that. Before I hit you just for a prediction, give me your impressions of Trevor Lawrence, and I don't know how much you've been able to sort of track him, but where do you think he is now, and is he ready for something like Alabama, which he hasn't seen yet? I always am wary of the, is someone ready for Alabama? <laughs> because it's just a different monster altogether. Sure. It just really is. Yeah, I think that because of what they've been able to do offensively this year, Alabama is not the same defensively, but that defense has gotten better week in and week out. And when I watched the Oklahoma game, the craziest part about it is 
I, I, I go back and watch a lot of things that took place in that game, and pe- we can talk about Quinn and Williams' ability and Tua's accuracy and you know how he hits the keyhole, he doesn't hit the door, and Jerry Judy can make plays, Damian Harris, whatever. But then I go back and start really dissecting it, and I start thinking about coaching. And it's just it can't be by accident that the amount of Alabama stunts, the amount of Alabama blitzes, the amount of Alabama offensive play calls that were just quickly dumped out in the flat are happening by accident. It's just, it's not. And you, we forget sometimes that Alabama is just very well coached at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and they're a team that, that knows where to deliver the football, where to line up defensively, where to attack you defensively. And sometimes I think we get away from that because we get a little bit enamored with the talent and the players when you really go back and dissect what they did to Oklahoma, it wasn't just, I mean, literally taking leashes off guys and say, all right, attack dogs, go get them. That wasn't what it was. To see the way that some of those things worked, the way that they did, you realize this is a very well-prepared, very well-coached football team. And not that Clemson isn't, but the thing that Trevor Lawrence probably is not going to be ready for is that this defense will make fewer mistakes than any other defense he's played. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to be able to slide a ball into a window that he was able to against uh, Pitt, or he's not going to be able to, you know, r- roll out or leave the pocket the way that he was against even a South Carolina. It's just not going to be the same. The windows are going to close faster. The pressure is going to be applied more quickly. The decisions are going to have to be made faster. He's going to have to process information more quickly. The coverages are not going to be what they appear to be pre-snap. Guys who he does not think are going to be coming to pressure are going to pressure. So I guess the challenge becomes, can he process all of that? Is he physically ready? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, young man can make every throw in the book. I think he's much bigger in stature than people give him credit for. He, he is. He's and, a big dude. He's a big dude. Yeah, and yeah. He, he's got good enough mobility to be able to keep plays alive. So physically, is he ready for it? Absolutely. My question would be mentally once this thing gets going. Because let's be honest, there was a lot of that Notre Dame game where Clemson just out-athleted those guys. No doubt. No and, doubt. and I kind of said it last week that my biggest fear for that game was that we were going to get in, in the middle of that game and it was going to look like last year's Big Ten championship game where, yeah, Wisconsin played with Ohio State and they made that game look a little bit competitive. But if you really watched that game, like if you watched it and you know football, you knew good and well those two teams did not belong on the same field together. That athletically, from a speed perspective, and an overall talent perspective, those two teams were not the same. And I think we saw that with Clemson and Notre Dame, that just physically, well, from an overall gift-from-God perspective, they were not the same. And that won't be the case against Alabama. They will not be able to just out-athlete people on a regular basis. So the one interesting thing that Dabo had talked about a couple of weeks back when he was here in New York is uh, related to Trevor Lawrence is that he was hoping to see him run more that the kid was actually so pretty comfortable in the pocket and was so pretty comfortable with his arm that he relied on that. But his wheels are pretty good. And maybe that's, you know, listen, I, I'm not going to say they're going to all of a sudden have him run 15 times against Alabama. But when you talk about processing the information and dealing with everything that Alabama does, having that element of the game be more pronounced can even things out for him if he's willing to use it. It'll be interesting to see if he's willing to use it. Because, listen, I mean, I think anytime Alabama loses, you almost have to have some kind of super effort from your quarterback, and that involves both plays with your arm and plays with your legs. He's got the ability to do this with his with his legs, but I don't know if it's part of his DNA yet and whether it can come out in a game like this seems questionable. But it can't just be, it can't just be the quarterback. I mean, let's go back oh, sure. to sure. Let's go back to Bo Wallace. He had Laquan Treadwell. Let's go to Johnny Manziel. He had Ryan. Mike Evans. I mean, third yep. downs and yep. Ryan Swope catching that game in mm-hmm. Tuscaloosa that day. Let's go back to Deshaun Watson with Jordan Leggett and Mike Williams making ridiculous catches yep. in those last two crazy drives. catches. So, crazy catches. And I think he's got the guys outside who can make some of those plays. And back to your point about what Dabo was saying, I agree. And I think if Oklahoma could redraw that game plan. I think they go four or five wide and run Kyler Murray ten times in the first half. 
just basically call quarterback draw left or right and say, all right, you're going to lean. If you're going to lean your front to the left, we're going to run it to the right. And if you're going to lean to the right, we're going to run it to the left. Because it's five on four, essentially. And you even saw in that game, they tried to spy him later in the game, and they just couldn't catch him. I mean, and all you got to do, all, all Kyler Murray has to do is delay a little bit, look left, and when, as soon as that linebacker takes a step up, run right, and boom. And the thing about Murray that I'm watching in that game, I'm thinking, yeah, they're losing this game, but those are big chunks of yards he's picking up. I mean, he's picking up 8, 15, 17, 6 yards a pop. Those are good chunks of yards against Alabama. So the, the key thing to consider there is, if you're Trevor Lawrence, if Alabama's going to give you anything, you damn well better take it. <laughs> right. And if they're giving you four in the box and they're only rushing three or four and they're sitting everybody back and they're going to give you a six-yard gain on the ground and you got to take it and slide, you better take it. Make them play you different than what they want to. And I think that's what Oklahoma did to Alabama late in the game. It was way too late. And if they would have maybe tried that early in the game, they could have kept it competitive a little bit earlier and not had to do what they did late. And obviously Alabama sort of throttled the offense down, so I don't think it would have been that competitive very late in the fourth quarter. But if Alabama gives you anything, you better take it because it's not something that they do very often. Last thing, Cole. Give me a prediction on this game. It's hard. To, listen, I'm picking Alabama. It's hard to pick against Alabama in any of these games. Even when Clemson beat them a couple of years ago, it needed an extraordinary effort, as you said, from not just Deshaun Watson, but from some of those receivers. But give me a score. I will probably say 42-28 Alabama wins this game. Okay. I think Trevor Lawrence will have a pretty good day. I think Tua will have a remarkable day uh, as long as he gets the ball out when he's supposed to. The only the only issue I could see with Tua in this game would be something that he does to himself, and he's done it at times, is trying to keep the ball too long and trying to keep plays alive a little bit too long. But I think, and I've said it before, yes, this D-line for Clemson is phenomenal, but this is the most balanced offense in college football that I have ever seen. And when I say that, I mean the ability to play too tight, the ability to play pro style with two backs, the ability to play three, four, five wide, the ability to go run option, the ability to go RPO, the ability to go read in the backfield, play action, throw to the tight end, throw to the running backs. There's literally nothing they can't do. And it's just the way that they block it, the way they mix and match their run schemes, I don't really see – a team just being able to stop it. If Clemson can't stop it, then I don't think they can beat it. Cole Kubelik from the SEC Network, from WJOX down in uh, Birmingham. Thanks so much for doing this, Cole. Always awesome insight. Hey, I appreciate it, Ralph. My second guest of the day is Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. And Paul, wanted to bring you on to talk about the bowl season in general. Let's wrap up the bowl season. We'll take a little bit of a look, a quick look to the championship game because we are recording this on Wednesday afternoon, the day after January 2nd. So all the bowl games have been played except the championship game. The championship game is not really a bowl game. It's a championship game. Let's do it the cliche way. Winners and losers of the bowl season. Give me a couple of winners of this bowl season. I thought you were going to go even more cliche and ask what conference won bowl season (laughs) because that is peak peak winners and losers cliche action. And I'm going to answer it like that um, as the conference. And I know this is with the caveat of the fact that Oklahoma lost. I was actually there. So I know this happened. (laughs) I still think the big 12 has had a great bowl season. And I wish that you would correct me and tell me I'm wrong, but let me just run down a few things here. Number one is obviously this being January 2nd, everyone saw what happened last night with Texas beating Georgia. To me, that's, the marquee moment for the conference, certainly a marquee moment for their marquee brand as Texas. Um, I thought Oklahoma, strangely, after that game in the tunnel, walking with some Oklahoma people, and that includes a, a few members of their media core and also people affiliated with the program, the sense was that they could like take a little bit of satisfaction and only losing by 11 points to Alabama, especially when they were down 28 nothing in the first quarter. So I'm almost counting that as a draw. I know they wanted to win, but I get the impression that Oklahoma wasn't necessarily devastated. I mean, upset, obviously, but at least they were happy or satisfied, like I said, with their performance. You have an Oklahoma State team beating their old rival, Missouri. 
Iowa State almost beat Washington State. At, I thought that was one of the great bowl games of the season, that Alamo Bowl. Certainly West Virginia had a lot on their minds, as we found out afterwards when they lost to Syracuse. But you have Baylor beating Vanderbilt. You have TCU beating Cal. I thought the Big 12 had a really nice bowl season, Ralph. And, and I know that the big one they lost. But just as our friend Jake Trotter said on Twitter.com, when they played SEC teams, the Big 12 showed up. And I think people look at those matchups and make a lot of those matchups. The Big 12 really acquitted themselves well in those games, I thought. So that's a win for me as the Big 12 on a, like, on a grander level than maybe you were looking for. But I think that was a major, a major W, I thought, for the entire conference this season. The other interesting thing uh, that Jake pointed out was the way those games went, those SEC Big 12 games went. The Big 12 teams asserted their offenses. The offenses right. that always get disparaged because they're playing against Big 12 defenses asserted themselves and played Big 12 games. I mean, even in the Alabama game, right? I mean, that was essentially a Big 12 football game or what we think of as a Big 12 football game. And the Texas game, you know, again, Texas's offense asserted itself and Texas's defense actually played pretty well, too. I think that's a fair winner. Again, especially for a conference that's taken a lot of flack. And when you look at, you know, I think if Texas loses to Georgia and loses convincingly, like a lot of us thought that would happen because we just thought Georgia was the better team. That very much flips the narrative, but you know when your second best team essentially beats what is looked at as the second best team in the SEC. Like I said, those are equals in bowl games. A lot of times you get weird matchups where Iowa State is a fifth best team in the in the Big Twelve, or maybe it's the fourth best team in the Big Twelve, and it plays basically what amounts to the second best team in the Pac twelve. So you're right, Iowa State can take a little something away from losing that game, even though it, you know, it lost close. But, you know, this was a true two versus two matchup, and Texas won the game. Yeah, and I think you made an interesting point, and, I, and Jake really highlighted this, and it's, and I do want to talk to, touch on it for a second. And that is that they got teams to play Big 12 style football. And I think, and maybe you can correct me, and obviously I don't have this data on hand, but it feels to me the sentiment that maybe in the last five or eight years, when these teams matched up, invariably at some point in the games, it became a quote unquote SEC style game where that physicality that we kind of equate with the conference took over. And I don't think you saw that at any point, even when Alabama went up 28, nothing, it was with a break here. It was with that overturned fumble. It was with a catch ruled, you know, a, a, a potential incompletion rule to catch. Um, it always felt like it was a big 12 style game, as you said. And what I thought about Oklahoma going into that game, and this is a little bit broader than maybe what we're talking about, but, it feels to me, and this is an example, college football, there will come a time, I believe, fairly soon, and I thought it could have even happened this year, where a team like Oklahoma wins the national championship. And when I say that, I mean a team that is just abysmal on defense, a team that is, like Oklahoma, 101st nationally in yards allowed per play, which is just atrocious. It seems to me football is becoming this sport, especially on the college level, where a team like that could just win a national championship or inevitably will win a national championship because this is the way that the sport is headed, where a team that is so one-dimensional, just as we saw in the mid-2000s, or rather in the early 2010s, late 2000s, teams like in Alabama in 11 and LSU in 11 were so slanted towards defense, and the sport at that point was so slanted towards defense that you could win with a, with a very average or worse offense. It seems to me like we're coming up on an age in this sport where a team like in Oklahoma that plays this quote-unquote Big 12 style can just outscore everybody and win a national championship and still rank 105th in defense because we still care about the metrics that to that team don't doesn't really matter. Okay. So that Big 12 style, you know what I mean? That Big 12 style seems to me like it's going to eventually yield a national champion. And a lot of us will say, especially the old people who are used to old metrics, will say, oh, this is the end of football as we know it, when in reality it's just an evolution of the sport. Well, because it's not the Big 12 style. It's, it's, it's football. This is right. what fo it becomes football. Right. right, this is what football has become, and this is why this is an important thing for the Big 12, because I think, and I think this is fair, the Big 12 hasn't recruited as well as the SEC and some of the, I mean, it probably the, big, the top tier of the Big 10 and the top tier of the ACC. That's been the Big 12's, ultimately the Big, it, listen, that's the problem. Anytime there is a problem with a conference or a team, it all comes back to recruiting. And part of the reason why that, I think, has been the case is I do think, Defensive players look at the Big 12 and say, I don't want any part of that. You know, elite defensive players, I think, look at the Big 12 and just think like, or maybe even some types of 
elite offensive players, whether it's linemen or maybe a running back. But I do think there's, a, to a certain degree, elite defensive players have looked at the Big 12 and said, nah, not for me. I'm going to go play in a league where they actually do play defense. But if everybody is playing this way, I think it gives the Big 12 a better chance of recruiting at a high level to compete nationally. Now, there are other things that go into recruiting having to do with demographics and location, and the SEC will always have everybody beat on that. Location, location, location. It's the most important thing, and the SEC has that inherently in their back pocket. But again, I think having the Big 12-style football be just what football is, I think can also help some of the Big 12's recruiting issues that, that have popped up in recent years. Yeah, if you think about how the spread and why the spread took hold in football in the first place, early 2000s, teams like Tulane and in smaller conferences, what we call group of five conferences now, they adopted this offensive style to even the playing field because they couldn't run with the teams that they played. Even in their own conference, some of these teams couldn't run athletically, talent-wise with their opponents. So their attempt to flip the field is essentially to glom onto this, at this point, wild and wacky offensive style that, for all they knew, was just this trick, one-year trick that wouldn't catch on. So if you're Oklahoma or you're the Big 12, it's essentially the same thing. Like you said, the talent level isn't the same. Uh, your depth isn't the same. Your recruiting hotbed of Texas has been taken over, essentially, by a bunch of other Power 5 leagues. How do you get? How do you even the playing field? You do what Oklahoma does, and you go full bore on offense, knowing that you're never going to match up on defense. That's highlight what we know. These kids play 7-on-7 seven seven all year. They play these offenses in high school through peewee all the way up. They know them like the back of their hand. Let's embrace it. I think the Big 12 has embraced it. And I think it's almost inevitable that college football, as we're seeing every year more and more, even at Alabama, is embracing it. It seems like this is where the direction of a of our future national championship is coming from. Our national champion, rather, is coming from. And that's just a team that says, whatever we do on defense, we do. We just need to score 49 points a game. Right, because you can actually just cook up the analytics and say, if we can get X number of stops, that's enough. That's all we need, and we don't need right. a lot of them. If we can get five stops today or five less-than-touchdowns in this game, we will be okay. And let me just wrap up this whole thing on one point, because we are now, I believe, Oklahoma, Florida, Tebow National Championship was 2008. Right. So we are 10 years from that. In that game... Oklahoma's ridiculous offense scored 14 points with Sam and that was one of the first ones that was, that Oklahoma Sam Bradford offense set all the records for point scoring and it was really one of the first fast pace offense and no it wasn't the first Rich Rod was doing some things there but it was the first of the fast pace offenses that played for a national championship and it was bonkers numbers and it was blowing it was scoring 50 points a game and throwing up a lot of points and it scored 14 points against the Gators fast forward 10 years Alabama beats Oklahoma in a playoff game but Alabama is playing more like Oklahoma than it played like Florida did in 2008 and we can sort of wrap it up there let me get to well unless you have another winner let me get to losers who was a loser maybe it's a coach maybe it's a player hint hint maybe a coach uh, maybe it's a league that you know sort of stood out as a loser in this bowl season well you could say West Virginia certainly West Virginia's had a terrible month or so or rather a couple weeks but I don't think West Virginia's shedding any tears off Dana Holgerson going to Houston um, I'm going to say Miami. Obviously, Miami, we can just look at the game itself. That loss to Wisconsin was indicative of what we'd seen from Miami all year, which is abysmal to worst quarterback play. No solutions from the coaching staff about what to do at quarterback or who to do it with. Um, a lack of energy, a lack of consistency, a lack of production, a lack of cohesiveness, whatever you want to call it. Just the game itself was the Miami 2018 in a nutshell. And you could stop there and say, well, Miami, this team we thought would be top 10, ended up 7-6 and six and so on. Um, clearly, Mark Rick, stepping aside, I don't know about you. Look, I, I was eight miles away from Coral Gables. Some people said after the fact, oh, I heard this was coming down the pike. I had no idea, none whatsoever, that Mark Rick was going to step down a day after the, the, the Orange Bowl. That took, took, took me completely by surprise. At the same time, clearly this program, as he saw it, was tending, trending in a direction that, that seemed like it was an irrevocable tailspin that he couldn't pull him out of. So when you look at it that way, you can justify the decision. I still look at Miami as being in a, in a position here 12 months removed, maybe 13 months removed from believing that this thing was going to take off. Now kind of back to square one with the first-time head coach. 
to me, they're the big loser of the bowl season. Even if, you know, the issues predate the bowl, I just thought the last week or so for Miami has been uh, predictably awful. I'll give you mine, and it is becoming harder. Like, you know, we will all celebrate Texas's win. We won't necessarily celebrate, but certainly Texas <laughs> will celebrate its win, and we will give a tip of the hat to Texas for doing a good job against Georgia. But it's hard to really gauge what these balls mean anymore. Listen, if you're Georgia, you got to own this. I don't care if DeAndre Baker didn't didn't show up. You know, you go out and tout yourself as a playoff-worthy team and then get smoked by Texas, you own it, right? This is just yours. However... I use that just as an example of, I don't really know what the hell these bowls mean anymore. Because <laughs> we don't really I mean, know who's showing up and with what motivation. All That's we a, can do, Ralph, is just accept them all. Right. You know what I mean? They like, just accept them all as meaningful. Or accept none of them as meaningful, but we can't pick and choose. Like, you can't pick and choose with Georgia as an SEC homer and say, well, of course they weren't going to show up. They wanted to be in the playoff. No, I'm not, I don't accept it. I, I refuse that, and I and I deny that. I deny that premise. Right, because you you can't own your wins and then and and disown your losses. So let with that said, man, Jim Harbaugh, you just can't get boat raced by Florida. And, and again, I don't know what to make of that. Like I, you know, somebody had a text a DM me during the game. I think Michigan cared about this game right up until the point where they didn't, which essentially was like. So I don't know if maybe forty one ten. I think it was forty one ten is the true result of that game. Where at a certain point, Michigan, you know, got got behind and they all looked at each other and like, man. What the hell? Like, what the hell is going on here? And then they shut it down and end up being a blowout. My only thing is Harbaugh is moving into a space where he only gets defined by his failures. Exactly. Yeah, I, he's, I'm a baseball fan, so I'll use A-Rod. A-Rod was one of the great baseball players of all time, but he was clearly de- de- defined by his failures. And any time he failed, that was the moment he needed to succeed. The moments where he succeeded, those weren't important. But all of his failures were the most important moment. Now, some of that is not really true, and it's a narrative. No, that, that's a great metaphor. I was about to ask you, name a great moment for A-Rod. You know, I'm a big baseball fan, so I can sort of come up with like, well, listen, he practically won this twin series when they won the World Series that year. But again, that becomes footnote. His successes become a footnote because he's just expected to succeed, whereas his failures become notable because and we only put the emphasis on the spots where he fails, like the failures are the spots where that was the big game. That was the big moment. And that's where Harbaugh is. His failures all come in the quote unquote big game or big moment. But I also think that any game he wins immediately gets put into the into the not a big game win. Right. Mm-hmm. The games that you win sense. are not big games because you won them and we expected you to win them. But every game you lose is a big game that we expected you to win also. So, listen, the criticisms of him are totally fair because you are 0-4 against Ohio State. So that will always be fair game. But I, he's just in a weird spot where I don't know how – other than simply beating Ohio State, he is in a no-win situation in every other game. Yeah, I think Michigan and Harbaugh are probably the most – obvious example of the Alabamaification of college football, right? Because you can be Jim Harbaugh and win 70-something percent of your games or or even a little bit more in the low 70th. I'm not sure exactly what his winning percentage is. You can really have successful season after another, except for the, you know an 8-5 and five year. You're essentially in the mix every single year. This year, as in other years in the past, they enter the final game of the regular season. I mean, seriously knocking on the door of a college football playoff and a Big Ten championship. But it seems like, like you said, when you hyper-realize these successes and you almost expect that every team is going to be, if you are going to be in that conversation, you need to be doing what Alabama and Clemson are doing. And when you don't, it's a massive disappointment. I think those expectations are unfair to everybody and certainly unfair to Harbaugh. Um, Being said, like you said, he does need to have a big win. He needs to have a win like the one we're talking about, which is an Ohio State game, a Big Ten championship. He needs that. It would be great for him. I just feel like the standard that he's held to is not really seen elsewhere in college football. And it is, like you said, because we love to hate Jim Harbaugh, just as back in the day we love to hate A-Rod. We love to hate other players who are successful or coaches to whom it seems to come naturally. Um, there's a, there's a, a degree of vitriol for Jim Harbaugh that transcends the Ohio State rivalry, that transcends the Big Ten East, that really goes coast to coast in college football. I've never been able to truly understand it except that I do realize it exists, and I'm sure that he does as well to a degree, because how could you not? I mean, you saw him at Big Ten Media Days this summer. You saw a toned-down guy 
maybe he's beginning to realize that the bullseye that he always imagined was good for him is actually not that great for him. Okay, so uh, and we'll wrap it up on Harbaugh with this. Let's look back to a different time in a different era. Bo Schembechler had a run from 1975 to 1979 in which he won between 10 and 8 games every year, and he lost one, two, three, four, five straight bowl games. Three straight Rose Bowls. He went. Now his teams were very highly ranked going in deep into the season, and fell off at the end of the season. His 1975 team was ranked as high as number two, finished number eight, lost the Orange Bowl. His 1976 team was ranked as high as one, finished number three, lost the Rose Bowl. His 77 team was ranked as high as one, lost the Rose Bowl, finished ninth. His 78 team was ranked as high as three, lost the Rose Bowl, finished fifth. His 79 team, ranked as high as six, lost the Gator Bowl, finished 18th. You know, I, I again, but like, I don't know if they were ever looking to run Schembechler out of town and what they, but like, the standard by which we judge the coaches has changed so much that that would not be acceptable these days. Because that's know. sort of what Harbaugh is doing. Maybe to not that extent, his teams are not reaching number one, but that is not that far from what happened, what's happening with Harbaugh right now. But, he is getting crushed, and I don't know if Bo was getting crushed at the same level. Maybe he was. I wasn't. You know, I was. Just, I was six years old back then. But I just think it's interesting if you frame it. If I told you, like Harbaugh's having a very similar career right now to Schembechler, I think people, a lot of people, would lose their minds. Now Schembechler was beating Ohio State more frequently in this in that ten year war, but I don't think it's that much different. It's not. It's just that. Our standards as a culture, certainly on the sports side of things, have changed so much that you're either great or you're a, you're a dumpster fire. Either you're the king or you're the jester, essentially, in sports nowadays. And right. Unfortunately, if you're not winning everything, you're just the court jester, and that's Jim Harbaugh. Let's wrap it up with this, and that is, you know, Urban Meyer is, frankly, one of the greatest coaches in, in the history of college football. If you just want to use numbers, I think only Newt Rockney and Frank Leahy, I believe, have higher winning percentages. So we're talking about the Stone Ages than Urban Meyer of coaches who coach more than 10 seasons in major college football. And because of what happened at the beginning of the year and some of his history at Florida, he is certainly not a coach who is embraced. He is not endured in way by other fan bases or sort of by college football in general. There was a point where, before things went really bad at Penn State, where I think, you know, maybe not everybody adored Joe Paterno, but he was sort of well-respected everywhere. Bobby Bowden, maybe if you were a Florida fan, you didn't love Bobby Bowden, but he was sort of accepted and embraced everywhere for his for his accomplishments. Urban Meyer doesn't have that right now for a lot of different reasons. But, man, guy was one of the great coaches of all time, and he coached his last game yesterday, and it doesn't feel like that was the case. Now, is that because he is not embraced and he is not adored, or is that because everybody just assumes he's coming back? Well, let me ask you. You've got to place a bet. Even odds, yes or no. Do you really think Urban Meyer is never going to coach again? I've already written that I believe he will never coach in college again. I'm going to stick with that. I think his ego is too big to go to most jobs in college football. So if you slim, if you shrink the pool of jobs that he would possibly go to, to the ones where, you know, I think it's are realistic, you're talking about only a handful of places, maybe not even that. So now you get into timing and things along those lines. So yeah, I'm going to listen. I understand I'm the odds are against me here because he's so young, but I'm going with, he's not going to coach college anymore. So you're leaving open the idea that he could coach the Bucks, essentially, or coach the Jets. I mean, okay, hold on, let me dial that back. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to edit that. Um, that he could coach the that he could coach the Forty ers You're leaving that option open. So you're not I, saying his coaching career is done, just his college coaching. Career. I do wonder now. I do wonder if his style and his approach would work in the NFL, and if that's the right fit for him because he loses a lot of control in the NFL. Though I do, I could see somebody convincing him. I'm the owner. Here's my GM. We want to make this your thing, Urban. Let's make this work. I I could see somebody convincing him because I think that his ego, that's something that could tempt his ego. I think something is going to have to be able to manage his ego. Somebody's going to have to tap into him and say, this is worth Urban Meyer's time. Come here and you can achieve a level of greatness you haven't achieved before. And 
I don't think he's like Spurrier. I don't think he's going to be able to look at South Carolina and go, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll win 10 games <laughs> there and be totally happy. Yeah, well, that's, that's a really good point. And it does kind of limit the idea of his options because certainly he's a calculated guy in terms of that. I mean, you can say, oh, that if USC comes open, that, that is obviously, I think, fits the bill of a, cert, uh, a certain sort of program that would attract him because, like you said, he's not getting in the business of going 8-4 and four and going to Liberty Bowl and being successful. That's, that's not his success. I just you look at the kind of leaders like you, you look at just the idea of leadership. Either like you're an explorer or you're a conqueror, either you're Vasco da Gama or you're Attila the Hun. I think Urban Meyer is clearly more of a conqueror than an explorer, like you said. So that fits into what you're saying in one respect. that He's not just taking any job. I just can't see him being close to satisfied whatsoever without that sense of competition of essentially not just being successful in a relative sense, but being the best of being better than everybody else. Maybe he looks at his new class on leadership and ethics and thinks, I'm going to be the greatest ethicist in the history of the world. I'm going to blow out of the water all those old Swedes who thought they cornered the market and be the greatest ever at it. And maybe he finds some satisfaction in that. I think it's more likely that he's back in coaching within three or four years, if not a little bit quicker, because there's an itch for Urban Meyer that I don't think anything else could possibly scratch except vanquishing and defeating all of your opponents. Yeah. So I do think he gets back into coaching at some point. And then, like you said, it's going to be one of those elite jobs where a coach is four and three on October 1st. And all of a sudden, everyone's just saying, well, this is the Urban Meyer spot. And it becomes an inevitability like Ohio State was back in 2012. My list is very short. It includes, I think, USC, maybe Notre Dame, but though I kind of think the Notre Dame ship may have sailed for a couple of different reasons. A, the issues that Urban has had over the last, you know, over his time at Ohio State and Florida. Not to mention the fact that Urban already said no to Notre Dame because he understands the limitations of Notre Dame and that, that it's really hard to win national championships there. So I don't think that that necessarily goes away. So it's like USC, LSU, and who else? Like So that, that's where I, I sort of land on Urban is that I think the, the possibility that he comes back is, is small because the possible jobs that he would take are few. Do oh. you think Brian Kelly would leave for the NFL? I think he would this is not a bad time for him to bail I also think Swarbrick gave him a lot of leeway and has been a big proponent of Kelly so I'm not sure if you know I think it'll be interesting to see if he can with a straight face go okay I'm out of here I also think that Kelly like a lot of these college coaches are getting more educated on you don't just go to the NFL each NFL job is different so I think that could be what keeps him at Notre Dame, not necessarily that, oh, I wouldn't mind going to the Patriots. I'd be open-minded to the Giants. It'd be interesting to maybe go coach the Steelers, but hmm. Bucks and Jets? Eh. Yeah, well, it's a good way to make a couple extra bucks. But look, if I'm Notre Dame and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers call to ask for permission to speak to Brian Kelly, I give them Brian Kelly's office number, cell phone, email, P.O. box, uh, I give him his second home, his first home. I give him every single possible way of contacting him. I would be so fine if I was Notre Dame with getting rid of Brian Kelly because it's painfully obvious more now more than ever that Brian Kelly will never win a national championship in Notre Dame. Interesting. And that, Why? And look, and that's not like, well, look, they've reinvented themselves. They've rejiggered everything. They've given him money to make the hires at coordinator that he wanted to hire. He's changed everything that he could possibly change. They went 12-0. and 0. It all worked out. And he can say what he wants. It wasn't necessarily schematics that had them lose to Clemson in that Cotton Bowl. As you saw, you were there. The still, the gap between a Clemson and Notre Dame is so large that I don't think 27 points really covers it. But is, so that, is gonna, that something that a, any coach can fix, or is that just not a, necessarily, a fixed but part you know of Brian the equation Kelly, with Notre Dame? I don't know if any coach can fix it, but you know that Brian Kelly can't. Okay. Because he had the chance to do it, and this is where they'll top out. And that's fine. And for about 95% of the country, that's ecstatically fine. That is, we love you. Please stay forever. We'll build a statue for you. But this is Notre Dame. So Notre Dame, you know that Brian Kelly's not going to win you a national championship. Okay? And that's not like some sort of great slag against Brian Kelly. I think if you and I sat here and we took five or ten minutes and thought of all the coaches in the country that we think will win a national championship or could, the list is like six. So this isn't like some great thing against Brian Kelly. It's, if anything, it's as much a matter of the circumstances at Notre Dame as it is against Brian Kelly because he could probably, 
at the very least, get another program into the spot that he's got Notre Dame in twice. It's just clear that he's not going to win one at Notre Dame. So if you're Notre Dame, are you in the business of being really good? Or are you in the business of winning national championships? I think at this point, if you asked the important people around the program, certainly the fan base, we're looking at three decades now without one. I think they want to win a national championship. So if Brian Kelly's going to go and he's interested in going, if I'm Notre Dame, I look at a pretty nice roster. Um, I look at a bunch of guys who are coming back that could at least maintain to a degree what they did this season, at least be in the New Year's Six mix. I look at a reboot opportunity, and I embrace it, truthfully, if I'm Notre Dame at this point. Interesting. I think Kelly will end up staying there. And listen, you could go out, maybe get Matt Campbell and try again. I think, I would argue, it doesn't get any better than this for Notre Dame. And you can change the guy at the top, and it's still not getting significantly better than this. And you will win a national championship when those other teams come back to you. When you stop having ridiculous superpower Alabama or the demographics of the country change and suddenly there are more players within your footprint. I mean, I know that's, I would probably have Notre Dame fans either breaking their hearts or breaking a chair over my head to say that, but I just think that (laughs) this is as good as it gets at Notre Dame. You might be right. But again, we don't know the answer to that. Right. So you want to go out and find it and find out the answer to I'm that. I'm just saying that if the opportunity is And see if Matt Campbell or, or Urban Meyer are, are the ones to fix it. Or a Matt Rule. I think anyone that you could get at Notre Dame, you're obviously not going to get like a noticeably worse head coach. Brian Kelly's going to the Hall of Fame, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, so he's no a doubt. Hall of Fame football coach. I mean, this, and I don't want this to be like some great hatred thing against Brian Kelly. If he's going to the NFL, I mean, God bless him. Obviously, he's one of the great football coaches in the world on any level, and, and he's deserved that right. He's just not winning one at Notre Dame. So if opportunity comes from Notre Dame to hire a Matt Rule, I think Matt Rule would be perfect there. I think if you can get Urban Meyer and look past all the other warts, like you said, they can't hire Urban Meyer. But if you can get a Matt Campbell, go for it. Shoot for the moon and try it. I mean, what's happening now is good but not good enough. Roll the dice. Take a chance. And wish Brian Kelly well and put him in the pantheon of the coaches there. Fine. But it might be time to try something else if the opportunity arises only. Paul Meyerberg from USA Today. I will see you in Northern California for the national championship game. Last thing in like a couple of sentences, who's going to win and why on, on Monday? I like Alabama to win. I will say this based on what we saw on this past weekend. If that performance carries over to Clemson, I think Clemson takes advantage of that and wins. I think Alabama is a little bit of a better team. I think if Tua is even more healthy, uh, that's a good recipe. I want to pick Alabama, but I do think it's going to be another classic. I think these are two, obviously the two best teams in the country and a validation for the playoff system that they're meeting again. Paul Myberg from USA Today, thank you very much for joining the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Thank you, Ralph. And now, three and out. First down. Time to start assessing who's coming back and who's leaving early in college football. The first big winner was Oregon, which will have quarterback Justin Herbert next season. The Ducks have most of the rest of a developing offense back in 2019, and Herbert's decision made them probably the Pac-12 favorites. The Washington, with Georgia transfer Jacob Eason at quarterback, will still be a legitimate threat. Second down, Michigan State's offense has been in a steady descent for about five seasons, bottoming out this year. The Spartans scored two touchdowns in their last four games, both in a win against Rutgers. Mark D'Antonio's tenure in East Lansing has been excellent, but this free fall is on him. How he goes about fixing it will be an interesting offseason storyline in the Big Ten. Third down. My last word on Georgia comes with a little self-promotion. I'm writing a column that should post shortly after this podcast hits, laying out my idea for a playoff plan which is nothing all that creative with eight teams, auto bids for Power 5 conferences, one G5 auto bid, and a couple of wild cards. A lot of people have that idea. College football struggles with its system to crown a champion because it is resistant to the simplest premise in sports. If you win something, you get something. There are good reasons why college football does not fit comfortably into this traditional model. As someone who loves advanced analytics in sports, I totally get the variances in opposition and randomness of results that need to be taken into consideration when the field is huge, 130 FBS teams, but the data points for comparing top teams are few. 
But ultimately, I think there needs to be a greater emphasis on results over educated guessing the results of a hypothetical. I prefer the objective over the subjective, understanding that even the objective can produce less than satisfying results. During the NCAA basketball tournament, which I love, I made a snarky remark on Twitter, which is no surprise, about what a terrible way the bracket is to determine the best team. I can't remember who it was that responded back saying, but it's a great way to determine a champion. I think college football is too caught up in trying to determine the best team, which is subjective, by the way, instead of trying to crown a champion. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Podcast One. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode and come back for more next week. We'll come back after the national championship game has been played and wrap up the season and that game as best we can. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Podcast.